right, so we are in week four of our series in the book of Revelation called The Great Comfort. We're going to pick up kind of where we left off. We left off after looking at chapters four and five, this picture that John draws of being drawn into this holy throne room where he gets an opportunity to watch the Lord interact, watch the Father, the one seated on the throne, interact with the Son, the Lion, and eventually the Lamb to whom he hands this massive scroll, the contents of which we're not able to see, uh, but are sealed by seven seals. As we pick up in chapter 6, those seals are being broken. And what we're going to see is the first six being broken, and then a an interlude, a discussion that, that John has, or a vision that John has given, um, he's able to see, and then the seventh. And then he moves, after the seven seals, he moves into seven trumpets. And I'm telling you all this ahead of time because we're going to run through these first four chapters pretty quickly and spend most of our time in chapter 10 today. So in chapter 6, he opens the first seal, and, he, and the seal is, is described as uh, it brings forth or sends forth a white horse and a rider with a bow. Um, long story short, the imagery here is designed to help us see, one, that it looks a little bit like Jesus and that there's this, this white horse um, with purpose, with meaning, might call us back to that imagery of Revelation chapter 1. But this character has a bit of a difference to it. This person um, is not Jesus. In fact, he's a false prophet. You know, it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck. It probably is a duck. Well, this is a guy who's trying to be that duck when he isn't a duck. Um, it is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's someone trying to pretend to be Jesus, acting like Jesus, and yet not really being Jesus. I think it's this warning is one of the reasons why we need to be really careful to hold up anything anybody says to us about, well, this is what Jesus says, or this is what Jesus thinks, or this is how God's going to do stuff, to the scripture and ask, does, it, does this fit? Does this make sense? Right? Uh, because sometimes there are ideas in this world that sound super cool. They sound great, uh, but if we really hold them up to Scripture, not the best ideas, and certainly not of God. He then open opens the second seal, and there's another horse that comes forth. And this is a red horse with a rider, the horse, the war horse of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And he's essentially... Um, sent forward to allow war to occur between people and so he paints this picture of this horse that comes forward and has and causes people to kill people the next horse is a black horse and a rider with scales there's a the scales are there's judgment attached to that but it, it's also famine killing people it's pest it's famine that he brings forth into the into the world and then horse number four is creation itself killing people and uh, it's a pale green horse with a rider named death and he's closely followed by Hades that doesn't sound good right but it, essentially it's the idea that the entirety of creation is coming after humanity and this is all super scary stuff he opens then the fifth seal and from that is a discussion around the martyrs those who were killed to carry forth this message to hold to this message and this me this message is both that of the gospel and this message that there is a reality that the day of the Lord is coming a time of judgment is coming and we have to recognize how important it is to keep that in, in sight um, otherwise we can pretty easily convince ourselves it's not really a thing it's never gonna happen 
It's off in the distance. We should never be concerned about it when the truth is we should be. And then finally, he opens the sixth seal with kind of this picture of the cosmos itself crashing in on itself. Uh, the writers or the readers at the time probably would have connected this uh, with Mount Vesuvius erupting and ash and soot just covering entire cities and towns and huge amounts of disaster. They could have been tying it to the burning of Jerusalem with so much going on there and disaster befalling the people. But even that, as he finishes up chapter 6, even all those things he's seeing is preferable, frankly, to the wrath of the Lamb. In fact, we see him in, at the, in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 6 saying, uh, all the saints are saying, look, I would much rather deal with all these disasters and the entire cosmos coming around and falling around me than to deal with the wrath of God which is mind-boggling because I don't know about you, but if I'm in the midst of some turmoil like that, I'm hoping God will pull me out of it, <laughs> right? And they're saying, if our option is the wrath of God or this, we're going to stick with this and take our chances. He then moves into this interlude in chapter 7 where he tries to reach out and show John that despite all the destruction that he's just outlined in the, in the last section of this vision, that there is hope, that there is comfort in the midst of this chaos. And he takes the moment to list 144,000 people from all of these different tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, although for the record, one's missing, it's Dan. <laughs> but uh, there's been some conjecture over the years, uh, especially through the Jehovah's Witnesses, that this is a literally 144,000 people. It's not, and we kind of alluded to it. Um, in week one, but it, it, it's meant to be 12. Remember, we talked about the symbology of numbers. 12 times 12, holy, perfect, complete people of God times a thousand, um, which means there's going to be a whole lot of them, right? Um, and that's important for us to see that that's what that means. It means that there's not just going to be one or two people making it to heaven. Uh, there's going to be all of those who proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if we're really careful and we think through that, that's a pretty broad breadth of people, which gives us quite an opportunity to recognize if you're already a follower of Jesus, we have a lot more brothers and sisters in Christ than sometimes we're willing to admit to ourselves. So keep that in mind. God is pretty flexible, and that's a good thing for us. <laughs> um, we might need to be as well. And then he walks into this, this season of, of a tribulation. Um, and he says in Revelation 14 through 17, he says, at the end of this tribulation, at the end of this, this um, fight, this difficult scene, and, and he's comforting the ones that he's, he's going to pull into heaven with him, right? And he's telling them, there's going to be a big crowd of people. Breathe. I've got you. But he says right at the end, he says, then he told me, this would be the angel, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That's the 144,000. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That means they've been saved by Jesus. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in this temple. The ones seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb, who is at the center of the throne, will shepherd them. And he will guide them to the springs of waters of life, and God will wipe away 
every tear from the, uh, their eyes. This is a, a message of comfort in the midst of the chaos. And this is what we depend on Jesus for, yes, for our eternity, but, but, but remember, the book of Revelation isn't just about what was or what's going to be, it's also about what's right now. And you don't have to look very far in the world to feel like the world's messed up. <laughs> and there's a ton of turmoil going on around us. One of the things that we have to offer the world as, as followers of Christ is peace in the midst of the storm. And, and John is saying, look, this, or the angel is saying to John, look, as he's showing him all of these things, he's saying, look, there is peace to be found in the midst of all of this. But it's only found in one place, and that's in the blood of the Lamb. That's in the cleansing power of Jesus. He then, if we jump into chapters 8 and 9, he speaks of the seventh seal, the final seal. It says in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. Can you imagine the most awkward silence in the world? I have trouble being quiet for 30 seconds before feeling like I need to break the silence. Can you imagine doing that for 30 minutes, right? The seventh seal is just opened in this grand scene in the throne room that you're watching unfold before you. And the one seated on the throne, the Father, God, just sits there quietly. That might freak me out. <laughs> but there is something we need, can, need to consider here. The silence of God doesn't always mean a bad thing. In fact, if we were to look back both at the Old Testament and to look back um, even in the New Testament, the book of Luke, we see that it paints this picture that God is sometimes silent because he's listening, because he's, he's hearing what we have to say. And that absolutely makes sense because also in this section of chapter 8, he talks about an incense, a bowl of incense that's, and the incense represents, he's very clear, represents the prayers of all the saints, right? That God is hearing, God is listening to, God is collecting. And then he lights essentially these prayers, this incense on fire and throws it at the earth, hurls it at the earth. Um, and you, you might ask why, why would he do that? Um, I really do, it's, I think it's the, the prayers of the saints being sent to the earth and hopefully providing one last urge for those who are lost to come to know the Lord. And so, then the seven angels begin show up and begin to blow seven trumpets. The trumpet is, is a warning of war, of, of attack or retreat, or just a, to be alert. Think air raid siren, right? It's like we need to be on our guard. We need to be ready. Um, the book of Joel also says that this trumpet being cast out or being played would be uh, something that happens preceding the day of the Lord. But it also happens in the days of renewal. Um, it's part of the New Year celebration in the book of Tisri. That's an um, intertestamental literature. Or a, um, it doesn't fit. The Jews would not have put it in the Bible as law, prophets, or, or wisdom lit. But uh, it is something they value that tells them how to do things, when to do things, and why back in that day. And the Tisri would have said, blow the trumpets. The New Year is coming. We would have seen trumpets blown as the the temple was opening. We would have seen trumpets blown to celebrate so much. Uh, so there's that there too. And then in, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says the trumpets will blow as my people gather 
to me. So the, the trumpet isn't just this instrument of bad, harboring bad things coming our way. <laughs> it's also an instrument of God's people being called to him and Jesus saying, come to me, I've got you, I've got you covered. Which then brings us into chapter 10, where we're going to be for most of the day. So let's read chap Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, at least the first part of verse 2. It says this, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll opened in his hand. You see the reference there to what we saw as a picture of Jesus in Revelation 1 that had a face like the sun, just like Jesus did. That's designed to help us see pretty clearly that um, this is one who represents the holiness of Christ, right? This person who's coming forward this time. It's very different than the um, four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? So it's this angel coming forward. And it's, by the way, it's a, it's a new, mighty angel. It's different from the ones that we've seen before. We see him showing up in a cloud, maybe to demonstrate the, the mystery of the scroll, the mystery of God's plan, and, and the rainbow that, that we just read of. It's designed to pull us directly back to the book of, of Genesis, in um, Genesis chapter 9, the story of Noah, as God makes a promise to Noah after the flood, which would be the last time the earth was destroyed, right? Or wiped out. That he would never do so again by flooding waters. It's a new covenant that he had made. And that's, as you're reading this as an Old Testament person, you would have seen that as a Jew or a Hebrew. You would have said, I totally know what that means. I totally know what he's referring to. And then you see these fiery pillars, which should draw you back to Exodus, where God was leading his people through the desert with a fiery pillar. It was a pillar of fire in the day and a pillar, or I'm sorry, a pillar of smoke during the day, a pillar of fire at night, uh, where he was ahead of them. He was guiding them. He was taking them to the promised land. This angel is supposed to, to exemplify all of those things. And then the, then the little scroll in his hand. A couple of important things. One, it's not the same scroll from before. So you can think of that one as the big scroll, and this one as the little scroll. <laughs> um, but the little scroll is different in that we weren't able to see, and John wasn't able to see the contents of the larger scroll, right? But this one, this one comes opened. It's already open when it gets here, which implies that the contents weren't secret. They were meant to be seen. And, and, and what John is about to see and what they're about to show him is essentially two things. One, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and two, the reality that this is all coming. So let's keep going. In the second half of verse 2 through verse 7, it says this. It says, he, that would be the mighty angel again, put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land. That's a big angel. <laughs> and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voice. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. John got to see some more stuff that he's not allowed to talk about. 
then in verse 5 it says, Then the angel that I had seen standing in the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, there will no longer be a delay, but the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. We see this angel standing on land and sea. It's, it's meant to make you go, holy cow, this dude's huge, and, right? And he's covering all of the earth. He's loud enough that as he screams, this is a message that is to be transmitted to all of the earth. And it's a message of immense strength and immense power. And you also see the imagery of the lion show back up in this section, the imagery of a warrior. It's like we're going, we're going back to battle here. We got stuff to do. It's not just sit and watch. We're getting ready to go do something to make a difference. And then the seven thunders show up and say, seal it up. Don't write it down. Pretty crazy, right? The idea here is to convey this, when the seventh trumpet sounds, is to convey this sense of urgency. Right, urgency, preparedness, even a little fear. And it's time to get some work done. We've got stuff we've got to do. And by the way, after the trumpet sounds is when the mystery will be completed and we'll be able to see clearly what's going on. And that's important for us to understand because remember we talked about earlier the ways of interpreting Revelation. Um, some who try to see it as this cipher to figure out what the end of days is going to look like to kind of reveal the mystery that God has kept hidden for a reason and it's still keeping hidden from John here. The truth is, it's not that. Um, he doesn't want us to know exactly how this is all going to pan out and he says in more than one place, this is none of your business. <laughs> this is fa the Father's job. Only the Father knows the day or the hour, right? When this is all going to go down, your job is to respond when he calls and to do what he's asking you to do. So let's move forward. It says this, and this is the part that John can share. It says in verses 8 through 11, it says, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel, and this is how I would have asked, <laughs> um, give me the scroll please and don't smite me <laughs> right so i went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll and he said to me take and eat it it will be bitter in your stomach but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth and then i took the little scroll from the angel's hand and i ate it and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth but when i ate it my stomach became bitter and they said to me you must prophesy again about many people's nations, languages, and kings. Kings. So the message is John is handed here is described as bittersweet. It sounds great, right? As you're saying it, it sounds great, but ingesting it can flip your stomach. And if we're really honest, right, I think even as followers of Jesus, the, the gospel can do that, right? The idea of being saved, the idea of being released from all the stupid things we've done, the sins we've committed, the mistakes we've made, the mercy and grace of God is the greatest thing ever. But it does also come with responsibilities. It comes with a call to change the way we look at our lives. It calls, causes us to, calls us to change what we value and what we don't. 
It calls us to submit ourselves to him, to the king, to the one seated on the throne and the one who's really in charge. Because remember, when this is all said and done, God wins. If we also think about it, it's bittersweet in that, yeah, though we might love to say it, the truth is not everybody wants to hear the gospel. Not everybody is excited to hear it. Now, what's really, really important to understand is that doesn't mean we don't say it. And I think sometimes we've convinced ourselves as the church that maybe if I just don't say it as much, um, then I won't offend anybody and my stomach won't get turned and I won't get nervous and people. But the thing is, we're called to say it anyways, right? He commands John. He says, this message you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. We must be willing to tell people who Jesus is, even when it's not popular. We must be willing to tell people who Jesus is and that salvation lies in him, even when we think we might get rejected. That's really not part of the litmus test. The, really, we fail to be the followers God wants us to be when we fail to try. Uh, remember, it's, and this is hard for us as humans, God is the one who decides the outcome. God is the one who gives the increase, would be the farming analogy that Jesus uses. We're not responsible for the outcomes. We are responsible for doing what he's asked us to do, which is to share a message of love, even if people don't recognize it as love. It's to share a message of caring and concern. It's to share a message of reconciliation, right? We're called to be ministers of reconciliation, Paul tells the Corinthians. We're called to pull people together under the banner of Christ because Christ always has the best for them in mind and to save them from the destruction that awaits otherwise. And one might say, why destruction? Why does it have to happen? Well, the truth is we serve both a graceful and merciful God and a just one. And justice is one of those funny things that we love justice when it's being applied to other people. We struggle with it when it's being applied to us, <laughs> right? Um, because suddenly the rules of what just and unjust are changed. Well, God doesn't change them. Um, God is consistent. He's never changing. Um, and that's a very good thing for us. But it also means that sometimes when we're spreading the message, it can be heard in a way that can feel bitter and angry and painful. And that's why it's so clear, so important, I should say, that we try to build relationships with people as we're telling them about Jesus. Get them to know who, know them for who they are so they can see that when we're speaking truth, we're speaking it for no other reason out of love. We're not trying to fix you. We're not trying to um, condemn you. We don't have the power to do either one um, as Christians. What we do have is the ability to be God's hands and feet on the earth. And, and we are called to be his witnesses, just as the prophets before us were, just as John is, um, and just as those who have come before us and will come after us. It is my hope and my prayer as we continue to study Revelation that we take away that reality, that we are called to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world. Um, and at the end of the day, at the end of eternity, the only one we report to is God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he grant you favor. May he give you peace. God bless.